Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. We have joining us today, Christine Sanu, who is going to talk to us about what we're dubbing nonsense marketing. Now, I, I refer to this as experiential marketing, but perhaps there's another definition we can get at here as we try to figure out what are some of these activities that marketers love to do, love to talk about, love to share stories about when it comes to marketing and gaining an audience. It's, it's these viral things that we hear about in the news and media, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work. So to start, Christine, what do you like to think of when we talk about nonsense marketing? Is it the same as experiential marketing or are we talking about something else here? I'm so glad we're talking about this because I, Sean, I feel like you and I started having a conversation. This came out because we we're having a conversation about it. And we were like, yeah, you know, like sometimes you get to work on these things that are really fun, you know, like, like, um, like nonsense marketing. <laughs> nonsense marketing is total nonsense until it works. The Wendy's Twitter is nonsense marketing. Developer TikTok is nonsense marketing. The stupid activations that we do for a ton of companies that are doing giant things that become experiential are nonsense marketing. And we often stumble upon nonsense by accident. I think tech particularly loves nonsense marketing because nonsense is agile by default. It cleaves to trends. It showcases younger voices and styles. It is of questionable value in architecture out of awareness, but it, there are ways you can measure it. There are ways you can drive it. There are ways that you can actually get value out of what to many people may appear at first glance to be nonsense. Interesting tech things on contract have worked on this. It certainly aligns with the brand or the uh, the audience that that brand is trying to capture. It is often experiential. It is often a big deal. S depending on the brand, it can be very expensive. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's always a fun opportunity to create something that is viewed as... Um, more magical than I think what we normally view as the the typical regular drumbeat of like of of standard marketing. <laughs> Can you give us a couple examples of what you've seen, what you've worked on? Um, I've got a few that I know of from Spark Fun days or like the big ones from like Budweiser. But what have you personally seen? Oh my gosh! Um, you know, I I think uh, back when I was doing more uh, consulting stuff and I was doing some work with The Verge, we worked on this activation called Home of the Future, which I believe was uh, a big sponsor of that was Ford, and then it was The Verge and Curbed and and some other folks coming together to create sort of this modern video series that was meant to show off like this is what the home of the future looks like. And what really interested me about this, um, it, it was it was very comprehensive. It was an entire build of a house uh, that was meant to be fully um, decked out with interesting Internet of Things devices and everything was supposed to be connected. And what was interesting to me about this from a marketing perspective was Ford's position in coming in to, to sponsor this and to be a part of it. When you think about this from a traditional marketing or brand marketing perspective, like I'm sure that Ford got some responses internally that was like, that sounds like nonsense. But in other right. ways, it's a really, um, you know, this sort of thing can be a really good way to create association 
with your brand um, with positive things that are viewed as cool by a particular audience you're trying to access. So, you know, I wasn't a part of any of those conversations, but when I was coming in as like a third party working on my own part of this activation, what I saw was a brand that was very interested in accessing people who were reading The Verge and people who were reading Curved and people who had a um, a good sense of, you know, we're, we're very future forward and future thinking people who wanted to watch the amazing late Grant Imahara talk about um, what the future meant and what was modern and new and what was easy and difficult about integrating tech into a home. You know, it's certainly like a, a, a brand play. It's certainly a, a big deal. And it, it was it was a big lift for everybody involved in that. Certainly possible to view it as nonsense. Certainly possible to view it as not nonsense. From Ford's perspective, I could see it saying, you know, let's go through with this. We've got, you know, Grant Imahara. We've got, we're going to get covered in all these magazines. And it's got to be, you know, not just brand recognition, but it also puts Ford in this position of we now look like a thought leader. Whether they are or aren't is up for debate, but they look like a thought leader. We're considering IoT. It's a home. It has nothing to do with cars or trucks, but they now look like they're forward thinking. It's kind of like the world's fair. It's kind of like what I'm thinking, right? Like you show off your things that you'll probably never produce in that sense, and it gets recognition. That's like in that sense, that's kind of what it looked like to me. Is that what you were getting? Harris, I'm curious what you've seen on this. Like, what have you seen from this like nonsense or experiential marketing that seems like they're just playing, but is it really? Well, I think it's hard because a lot of big companies, you know, they really rely on agencies to bring in ideas. And so sometimes it's really hard to know what is this rooted in? Like, what is this campaign rooted in? Who came up with this idea? Was it just like a big brand who feels stuck and then they went out to a bunch of agencies and, you know, they go to like a uh, CPB or, you know, one of these big shops like Wyden Kennedy and, they, and, and then they come up with this crazy idea and the internal team is like, ah, oh, what the heck, let's go for it. Uh, versus an idea that's sort of more rooted in the the history of the company. And I think sometimes it, it can be really hard to tell, especially if you're not the intended audience for the campaign. You know, it may not resonate with you the same way. It may not click with you the same way. And, you know, I think also, you know, there's these incentive challenges, like just like literally thinking about like who comes up with these ideas and like, what are their incentives? And like, you know, I'm the CMO for this big company. Like, do I want to make a splash? Do I want to make a name for myself? Like how much of this is about growing the business versus just sort of doing something wacky versus like, oh, I can just blame it on the agency if it doesn't go well. <laughs> so I think it's sometimes it's really hard just as like a you know, a plebeian sort of unwashed masses were sort of watching these things get swept across a society, like on every billboard, every TV, every radio station, every internet ad. And it, it, sometimes it's hard to know, like, what are they trying to accomplish here? And sometimes it seems like nonsense and it's not. But other times I think probably things seem really thought out and maybe there's there's not really a strategy behind it at all. So I think my like initial thing on this is like, I don't feel like I even know what's going on sometimes when I see these bigger campaigns, you know? <laughs> I think this brings up a good point as to what you were saying, Christine, about they're trying to reach these audiences with Verge and Curved and, and other readers, right? It, it comes down to one of the big lessons here is to know your audience. We've come back to this many, many, many times. It's like if you don't really understand your audience, almost any marketing effort you're going to do is, I'm not going to say guaranteed to fail, but you're just throwing darts around a room and hoping you hit a dartboard. Like, it's not even like hoping for a score. Like, you don't even know. So learning about your audience is, I think, the first step. And understanding who the readers are in this case were a big part of this. 
Yeah. And I, I think that when we think about marketing, that is something that is essential to every kind of marketing and also product development and product marketing. You know, you really want to focus on who your audience is. Um, and, you know, when it comes to marketing, you want to focus on the audiences that you're trying to access and what you want your brand to look like in those contexts. I think it's it's really funny for me to think about what is nonsense marketing as a question, because I think that, you know, the more we talk about this and like the, the terminology nonsense marketing, that like, you know, this idea of something where when some people see it, they say that is nonsense, but why was it successful? <laughs> Right. Or that, is, that was nonsense. How is it possible that that was successful? And I think that, you know, I like to call it nonsense marketing because it sort of distracts from like some of the strategy underlying it. But the truth is that like a lot of nonsense marketing isn't nonsense at all. It is very well thought out. It is um, very sticky. A lot of the things that people then try to do to be as sticky as the well thought out nonsense is true nonsense. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think one of the classic examples of this are um, anything that's trying to be the Wendy's Twitter feed. <laughs> Yeah. Like Wendy, the Wendy's Twitter feed is something which I think probably started out when people looked at it as like nonsense marketing. People were like, that's nonsense. Um, but it goes really well because it's based on a true understanding of who is on Twitter, who is the audience that they're trying to access, what is the energy and the beliefs of that audience, and how do you best show authentically that you are with them on that. And and I think that, you know, Wendy's Twitter does a really good job of that. Now, what does become nonsense is when other people say, hey, we should do a thing like Wendy's Twitter, which has just never gone well. So for anybody who may not know, go look at the Wendy's Twitter. Now, if I remember, they're experts at throwing shade, right? They... <laughs> Like, is that, is that my understand? Like, do I have a correct understanding of what Wendy's Twitter is? They, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's certainly a part of it. You know, I, I think that the reputation of Wendy's Twitter is kind of just this, like, they very much speak the truth or they speak their mind. They often throw shade and they are like not shy about getting into these visible, humorous fights with other uh, with other fast food Twitter accounts, they which do. is not a sentence that I ever thought that I would say <laughs> 12 years ago, but that's where we're at. There's some um, good exchanges with like Burger King, if I remember. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, I want to I want to rewind back. I want to rewind to the year of 2014. Anybody remembers this campaign? It was all over the, the TV. It was anytime you like turn on a football game, you would see it. Bud Light was running this campaign called Up for Whatever, and specifically, they would have the mayor of Whateverville going to these bars and talking to people and getting them to like fill out these forms and and try to like guess if they were good for Whateverville or whatever USA. In the end, they rented a town. Specifically, it was Crested Butte, Colorado. They rented the town. They just gave them five hundred thousand dollars, and they were like, "Can we have your town for a weekend?" And the mayor. And leadership of Crested Butte was like, sure, have fun. And they just like, everyone just kind of left. And so this town belonged to Bud Light for a weekend. They literally painted the streets blue. If you were a winner of this contest, and I'm going to put contest in big air quotes, because we're going to come back to why this is seems like nonsense, but it isn't really. They flew these contest winners out to Crested Butte, and they just had one giant party for a weekend. And they had, like, performances. Of course, there was, like, free beer, parades, dances, uh, bands, whatever. It was just a giant party. And it looked like complete nonsense. Like, it looked like another 
contest, but not really. It's like anybody can go, but it wasn't really anybody. And it was just weird. And it's often held up as one of the prime examples of experiential marketing, because here's the truth behind it. The people who won weren't just random draws from a hat. They were specifically interviewed to be extroverted. They had to be outgoing, basically your party goers who were going to you know, have a good time at a weekend long party. And they had to have a pretty solid following and engagement on social media. That was the key because they wanted these people to go to this event and tweet about it. Instagram, TikTok wasn't a thing then, but whatever. They wanted it to be shared as authentically as possible from that winner winner's point of view because they won this contest. In reality, they were just influencers who were just shipped to this event and Bud Light spend a ton of money to make this happen. So it just increased their reach through pseudo-organic means. They're funneling money and funneling a good time to these influencers to say like, Bud Light is the party beer, is kind of like the message without them directly saying it. And it, it was a good event. It was a great I remember walking through the Denver airport and seeing like half the outbound flights to whatever USA, like they literally changed them in the airport. They did. I remember come flying back into Denver from somewhere and I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, oh, right. This is the Bud Light thing. I'm like, it's in Colorado. (laughs) So it was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. They spent millions of dollars. Of course it's Budweiser. They have millions of dollars to do this, but when it, when it comes down to it, it looks like nonsense, but in reality, it was a big influencer marketing. And that's knowing your audience or audiences, I suppose, and using them to influence others. Like it was influencer marketing. That's what it was, just yeah. experiential. I mean, this is a really big deal because this is also the idea, like there's, there's so many things I like about this story. Um, but, you know, one of them is certainly that when you're looking at, uh, was is this nonsense or is this successful nonsense? <laughs> right. Um, it, it's it's a question of what what were you trying to get out of it? Um, were you able and and oftentimes you know like people will talk about building the brand, but also being able to break through the noise is often a really big component of experiential or high visibility marketing. That what you're trying to do is make your brand more visible than other brands via many different means, you know, and, and the, the Budweiser example is flashy for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, they made a lot of changes to the world, <laughs> um, including having things show up in the airport that would make it uh, very capable of propagating via word of mouth. You know, a lot of the, the like nonsense marketing things we're talking about are highly associated with more organic growth rather than like paid growth. Um, although there is a upfront paid investment to get that done. And then they ensured that their audience um, and would be continually activated by these influencers after the fact. So it's, it's a really, yeah, I think um, that seems like pretty successful nonsense to me. Yeah, for sure. And some of these, the ones that get a lot of press usually involve a lot of money. And that's kind of one of the things I want to ask about, like, how can you determine if it's going to be successful? But I I suppose that's the same question of how can you determine if a video is going to go viral? Sometimes you just don't know. I I remember watching a TED talk. um, This was a few days ago. And it was like, why do videos go viral? And I, I think it was from one of the YouTube, the people who ran YouTube at the time. I watched like two videos and now I'm getting their like 
completely merged together in my head. And I'm sure there was three things this person mentioned, but I remember two. And one of them was like, get lucky. And right, some of this is like, you don't know. It's a big, big, big risk when you spend a bunch of money to do one of these events. And the other thing they mentioned was to do something that's surprising. And that's, I think, what you're talking about. Do something that breaks norms, that breaks what people are expecting. And I think that's what gets attention. But not always. I I remember like one of the things they would would tell us is like, oh, we need more videos with explosions. And like, yes, that's kind of (laughs) unexpected. And but it's not I don't think just explosions are the real driver. A lot of times they have to be tied in with knowing your audience. Yes. And then they have to be unexpected. If you start the video, like we're going to explode something and you explode it like, yeah, you might get some views because explosions are fun, but I don't think that's nonsense marketing necessarily. Right. That's just you're exploding things. Right. And, I, you know, the question is, is really like what is surprising and why and what is breaking the mold and why are you doing that? You know, and, and I think that there is a certain degree of brand departments wanting to be surprising for the sake of being surprising where they're like, this will make us cool. And you're like, no, no, like it's, it's, it's all about the context of your audience and what your audience wants to see and what your audience thinks is interesting. And it's funny that you mentioned the explosions thing. What year was this? (laughs) Oh, I mean, this was 2016 or so. It was just, it was just one of those like, oh, these other tech people are doing. Yeah. This was, this was the, uh, the year of electro boom doing more. I'm hurting myself less. uh, I'm teaching you because he has a great channel but his shtick in the beginning was, I'm going to hurt myself by, you know, playing with this transistor or, or, you know, transform or whatever. And he pretends to really hurt himself. And, you know, it's funny. You come to expect it. And then late, his later videos turned into, I'm now teaching you electronics concepts. And he's a good teacher. But his early shtick was explode stuff and hurt myself. Yeah. And, and I think that there's, you know, this is this is the thing where like, is it is it nonsense that works or is it nonsense that doesn't work? Nonsense that doesn't work is often imitative, just trying to take the superficial themes Mm. of a thing that worked rather than breaking it down into its component elements and saying, all right, so this went at this time because the audience really liked to see this, or it was different for this reason, you know? Um, And I think that if you don't do that as a company or as a brand or whatever, you really run the risk of placing your brand in an awkward position, not just of looking like two quote fellow kids or looking like you're late to the party, but of actually doing brand damage because you, you, you end up saying something that's not aligned with you or that's not aligned with your audience. I don't know that that was a case for the explosions thing. Cause in general, I think like, you know, explosions applied correctly can be a pretty evergreen thing depending on how you do them. <laughs> yeah. But like, in <laughs> but it was really like big right then. I yeah. remember. Well, you look at Mythbusters, right? And everyone looks at Mythbusters. They're like, oh, they blow stuff up. Like, no, there's a context and a story. They understand the story and what engages the audience. Explosions is just part of that. So I, I think to say like Mythbusters is successful because they blow stuff up is really missing what they do. And that's not nonsense marketing. That's an actual TV show, but same idea, right? Like because so, somebody blew something up on Twitter or YouTube, that means we have to do it. And you're like, no, you bring up another good point. That's authenticity, right? What's authentic for your brand? I think that's a huge thing you have to come to terms with. It's very important if you're doing any kind of marketing to not think of people as numbers and to remember that people are people and that they're individuals and that, you know, individuals take notice. You know, if you if you do things that feel like, particularly for developer marketing, we've talked about this a lot, you know, if, if you do things that developers think are a hard sell, <laughs> developers are just inclined to hang out with you. I'm a developer. I don't want to hang out with a company that's like clearly trying to sell me something and yeah. will level with me about like the ways in which that falls short, you know. 
or, or like, give me the right documentation I need to solve my problem, you know? And I think that developers are probably one of the hardest audiences to market for, for that reason. But I think it applies to all audiences that ultimately people can tell when you, it's relationship-based, people can tell when you are being genuine versus when you are not. And uh, this is one of the reasons why some of the nonsense works in the Budweiser example, why accessing influencers potentially works better than (laughs) Budweiser going out as like the big behemoth company and saying like, you know, you should listen to me. This episode of Hello Blink Show is sponsored by Twilio. Sean, what are they working on over there? So Twilio actually has an upcoming developer conference at the end of June, June 24th and 25th, and it's going to be virtual. It's all streamed on twitch.tv slash Twilio. So you can check it out. Uh, head to Twilio Relay Dev Conf 2021.splashthat.com and we'll make sure there's a link to it in the show notes. This conference is a collection of developers, whether you're new, whether you're a veteran developer using Twilio or you're curious about what Twilio is and how to use it. It looks like a cool way to hang out virtually with uh, fellow developers, see what they're working on or show off your own projects. On the 24th, they've got a networking event. And on the 25th, they've got a number of speakers and people showing off their projects and kind of what they're working on. This is a cool way to get to know other developers in the space. So definitely check it out. Looks like a great event. If you can't make it or if you just want to learn more in general, if you go to twill.io slash helloblink, you can learn about programs that they have for startup founders, especially IoT companies, because Twilio does a lot in the IoT space that you might not have heard about. So check it out. So I'll, I'll give a story from my SparkFun days. Um, I, like one successful, one so-so example that worked for experiential marketing in 2015, we made this thing called Badger Hack, and I, I laid out the board, wrote a lot of the initial firmware for it, and at the time, SparkFun had a number of kits that we would take to maker fairs, and people would stand in line, and they'd come and solder the kit, and it would like blink a light. You could play Simon Says. They were fun. They were really good, but we were going to South by Southwest, so of course, we needed something better, right? It's South by Southwest, right? This was the big... I, I know Christine's laughing right now because I'm assuming <laughs> you've got some stories about South by Southwest. Well, I, I think it's, it's funny. We could not possibly have gone through an episode that was about experiential uh, and marketing not. and not talked about <laughs> South by Southwest. I was like, oh, there's like, it's definitely going to come up. It's yeah, definitely going to come up. Of course. It's South by Southwest. It's kind of like, you know, the, the mecca of experiential marketing and startups of, yeah, that's not the Bay Area. So... So we were taking it to South by Southwest. We also took it to some maker fairs. And what we did, this is interesting. What we did is Badger Hack was this, like, it was like a board. They could solder pins to it. It had this little LED array. And um, one of my favorite pieces was Nick Poole actually built this station. You would take your badge after you soldered it together. You take it, you plug it into the station. He made this, like, interface that was like this physical interface. You push these buttons to light up a pattern. You would, like, dial this knob. Like, it was this, like, almost steampunky kind of thing. And it was great. <laughs> and you would, like, you could, like, type out your name in this, like, little keypad and you could like punch in a pattern and then you could say like play the game of life and it would play with that pattern and then you would push a button and it would download it to your badge so it would cycle through all of these things you would just put into the steampunky thing like it was a very like fun experience and people just stood in line for like an hour we would tell them like hey this is like an hour line and they're like yeah but this is the coolest thing in this whole thing but here's the kicker We didn't take it to big South by Southwest. This was South by Southwest EDU, which was kind of at the time trying to be a little maker fair. And we also took it to maker fair, which it did very, very, very well in. The next year we did, or sorry, not the next year, 2017, two years. We did 
uh, Rosham Glow, which was kind of a take on it. It was like people could solder the, a little thing. It was a different badge. Um, and they would play like rock, paper, scissors over infrared with other people with the badge. Like, cool idea. It didn't do nearly as well. We didn't have a line that wrapped around three booths because we took it to big South by Southwest. More people, different audience. And I think that was kind of the key as far as understanding your audience. And it it was authentic for Spark Fun. I, I don't think we were missing authenticity, but I think we were missing this idea of who the audience was and who who that would appeal to, that particular activity. And the thing that, that hits me with that story is really... Um, it's it's the the missing piece about propagation. This is this is a thing that trips trips people up a lot. You know that in the the context of the EDU part of the conference, you had enough people to get a critical mass mm-hmm. that you would be able to rapidly bring in a giant crowd with like a wraparound line, and it was easier for you to break through the noise in that smaller group. Um, and it in the context of the larger conference, it was both harder to break through the noise and it was harder to get the critical mass of people and the concentration of people you need for you to get that flywheel going so that you have the wraparound line. The question of how is this likely to propagate and how are your audience members likely to reach each other is just a constant struggle with any of these like kind of trending viral marketing things. And it is often a failure point for when something is exactly right for the audience, but it somehow doesn't reach the audience. That's a good point, especially about the idea of like, what's that critical mass, right? Like making sure that people can show other people, can they be influencers? And being a big fish in a small pond might be better sometimes than being the small fish in a big pond. And there's also a a thing with, with propagation that's interesting to me, which is sometimes it is easier to propagate a particular thing when you are hitting a growth curve for the community. There is a thing that I'm sure you've seen a lot where people like to show off or talk or do more identity formation when they are newer to a community. So Mm. if you find a community that is in a high growth stage, it can be easier to get people to talk about things or to get people to show things off or to get people to become brand ambassadors for you. And that's something where... um, you see it play out online a lot. You see it play out in conferences a lot. I wonder if that's part of what happened with EDU being um, a newer space that year. Yeah, that's so true. That gets back to, I think, our final question here. And that is, how do we know that we are, we're reaching the right market? I mean, there's, there's the idea that uh, I, I mentioned in, in some notes earlier when we were chatting about the idea that we need to market this effort sometimes. So like when, when Ford made the home of the future, it's just like any engineering product. They didn't just make this home. They made the home and then wrote a ton of content and press releases and videos. They basically marketed this marketing effort. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind. But then we come back to the question of like, how do we know that we put all this effort into this huge campaign? How do we know it's successful? I mean, is it just signups? Is it increased business? Some of it's just brand recognition, which is really hard to measure. Well, sometimes you have multiple audiences too, right? Because, you know, I think of CES and as as an aside, a lot of the things that we're talking about here are in-person events. And I do think that you can really surprise people in person by doing something that they're not expecting. And I think there's not a, it's not a coincidence that that's a thread through a lot of these examples that we've thought of, but, uh, CES consumer electronics show big annual conference in Las Vegas and like very glitzy. You know, especially in recent years, bigger companies have been doing like huge ad buys to like, you know, their logos are everywhere and all over the place. But the question is like, what happens there really? I mean, there's like three types of attendees at CES. You have 
distributors and that's really where they say, okay, here's what we're going to be buying for the year. This is our plan in terms of our hardware purchasing and things like that. You have press talking about, hey, here's what the new stuff is for the new year, right? And then you have attendees who are oftentimes employees of those companies, uh, people who are local, some people just kind of like to see what's new and come from all over the world to go to CES. And so you have these three different tracks of people who you need to engage with. And it's very intense. I mean, the budgets for these things are huge. I remember one year we talked to construct, I was talking to uh, the labor crew who's breaking down a booth that Audi put together. And literally the budget for the breakdown of their booth was a million dollars. The budget to take their booth down was a million dollars. So you're like, okay, how do we stand out? And I was really excited. We came up with, I think, a pretty awesome idea. This was back at Lulzbot. We made a little mini production floor in our 20 by 20 booth where we actually made 20 Lulzbot printers at the show. And we had assembly techs like from our production floor that we flew out and they were in these bright green lab coats and we had printers printing parts and we made you know custom etching for these. And the booth was really busy the whole time. And we wanted to be entertaining for people who were walking the show floor. We wanted them to see like, what the heck is going on here? And we were literally producing, packaging them up, taped them out and we gave them away. We gave away all 20 of those printers. That's awesome. But we also, yeah, it was, I mean, it was so cool. I don't think it's ever happened before. Uh, you know, to literally make consumer electronics at the show. But we also had distributors and press coming by the booth and they were like, wow, there's so many people here. Cool. And like that sets the tone for, okay, cool. How many printers do you want to buy this year? Or, hey, you should talk about us as like the cool company at the show. So sometimes you have your sort of immediate audience and then your intended audience and they're not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. And what I really like about that is the activation that you did at that show is such a good extension of Lulzbot as a brand, you know, and of 3D printing as a theme that, you know, what you're doing is you're taking the idea of home manufacturing, you're taking the idea of putting the manufacturer into the hands of individuals, and then you extend that metaphor into a really good marketing activation for the show where like you are showing the creation of the thing and the the actual manufacturer of the thing live at the show. And then of course there is additionally this draw of, hey, you can have this printer, which is a big deal. Yeah. And it's way better than just giving it away because you have that whole experience of like viewing it being made, which is, yeah, like you said, unheard of at CES. That was a great way to stand out at such a big show. That's just, I've been a few times, you can't see every booth. You just, there's not enough time. It's, no, it's literally impossible. There's so ma- there's so much show uh, floor footage. Yeah. So there's ways that you can punch up as a small company if you're, I think, finding a way to be yourself. And I think if you find you know a small pond and you be the big fish in the in the small pond, or you just acknowledge like, hey, we're gonna be a little fish in a big pond. Well, we'll do like fan service here, and we think that like our fans will be into it, and that that'll have an impact. Um, so you can do nonsense things that aren't totally nonsense, but you do have to think about it. I remember so many meetings, we would talk about all these ideas and we would never do any of them. And a lot of times the reason we didn't do them is because we didn't feel confident that we could pull it off. And when we got to this point of the company, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of stuff going on. I think everybody in marketing was like, you know what? F it. Let's just do this. Cause like, whatever, why not? And, uh, that feeling of let's go for it, I think enabled us to take a chance. Whereas we had had dozens and dozens of conversations about other ideas that we never, felt like emotionally comfortable taking the risk and we and we didn't and i think we were probably worse off i don't think we were being as effective because of it yeah so i I did have one more question and that is what can you know we talked about these big activations these big campaigns um that even like smaller companies can pull off if they put aside a budget what can like a solopreneur or or you know a very very small startup do to get this kind of attention 
I have a lot of thoughts about this. I have enough, I have enough thoughts about this that we can make an entire episode that is just <laughs> yes. about like solo entrepreneurial marketing about like different products that you're doing or side projects that you're doing. Well, can you give us an overview in like five minutes here? Let me first, uh, let me brag on Christine for a moment because she's not going to do it herself. Christine has built an excellent brand for herself. I mean, if you look her up online and we'll put links in the show notes, she has done such cool stuff with literally like some of the biggest media companies in the world. Her work is really impressive. So, you know, she really knows about this. So I'm just going to give her that credit before she talks because I know she's not going to take it. Uh, She's like literally done this before in really cool ways. And if you just look her up in uh, the Google machine, you'll see all the cool stuff she's done. Yeah, that's that's true. We'll we'll post some of our favorites in in the link. I remember, was it a couple of BuzzFeed ones that I remember seeing that were just (laughs) like really, like just out there, but like, that's crazy cool. The, the question is always, what are you trying to drive with yeah. this? Like, and that, that is, that, you know, is something that we've harped on for even large companies and, you know, Sean working for Spark Fun and Harris doing work with all about, like, it's always going to be, what are you trying to drive and what is your goal? And, you know, if you're trying to drive just awareness and views, or if you're trying to drive an actual like uh, purchase or, or like, and how, how tightly correlated those two things need to be. <laughs> Um, you know, I think that when you are a small team working with this, a lot of what you want to do first is get your fundamentals down. Um, if you're trying to do long-term marketing of your product, what you really need is for your fundamentals to be solid. You need for your, if it's a platform, you need your documentation to be solid. If it is a product, you need that core product and that core product market fit to be solid. And then you can do nonsense on top of that once you have that all set. Now, that being said, sometimes there are side projects that are clearly trending side projects (laughs) Where your goal is not to build a giant audience and to uh, sell, you know, like a hundred thousand units or more. Like sometimes your goal is you want it to be out there. You want it to be visible and you want to sell like five. Five would actually be a great thing for you. Um, And a really good example of a time this happened was the Alexa phones. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you all have seen this. This is a project that I worked on with the man who's now my husband, Richard Whitney. Uh, but like we we were, um, we made these telephones that are like old school telephones with an Amazon Echo built into it. It's hardware muted when it's hung up. And when you pick it up, you can talk to Alexa. And this is a whole thing where it was a discussion. The, the propagation of this side project, the nonsense of the marketing and like how to make that nonsense successful was worked into the product development. And I think that if what you are trying to do is a trending project, you need to do that really early. That needs to be the first consideration is who is it for and how will it propagate? It becomes a larger conversation about product market fit. So, you know, the the conversation about this when we started doing it was very much about like, okay, so we're looking at security conscious people. We're looking at people who are readers of these publications. We're looking at people where they like things that are very nice and they would be willing to, we don't want to make a ton of them. So we don't care about trying to kickstart this or anything. Like we just want people who are willing to pay a couple thousand dollars for a really nice piece of art that has like an actual tech usefulness to it. So the important thing was going to be to hit the people with megaphones as in like any publications that we could potentially get to write about it. Um, and to make the thing that was going to justify that spend. And so, you know, that was, that was the consideration from the beginning. That was the strategy we ran and that was very successful. Like in the scope that we had defined, it worked really well. I think that what happened uh, for this, and I can say a lot more that I won't this episode about, you know, 
know, ensuring that like the way that you get onto the larger megaphones, particularly in a press context, um, when you are a small team, but like, you know, we ran that propagation strategy, um, and it worked super well. I think it was like on all of the large tech blogs, like in the same week, it just suddenly it went wide and we got exactly what we needed out of it. Um, so it's definitely possible to do and it's possible to engineer. But if you're going to do single project trending nonsense and a small team, the trending part and the nonsense part has to be a consideration from the beginning along with the product. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So understand who you're going for. And if it's going to be a product, making sure you're like, yeah, we're going to sell like three and that's okay. Yep. And, and you know, what, what justifies your, your time and, and the spend, I think, you know, the, if you have a longer timeline, if you have a, a company with a, um, if you're, if you're trying to do a larger product, um, you know, thinking about all of your audiences and sub audiences, a lot of times for things like, startups or Kickstarters, like your audience that you're trying to access is not just your users. You're also trying to access press. You're trying to access investors. You're trying to access a lot of different people who are not just your end users. And keeping that in mind when you do things that are meant for high visibility is really important. Yeah, that's really true. Um, and so, so I think to end here, the, I think a lot of nonsense marketing looks like play when people see it. And I think it's important to keep that playful aspect of it. And I, I think there's some use, like if you're working on something and you're working on some new tech, some new device, and there's an aspect of playfulness that you can whip together and show it off, as, as long as you have the time, like go for it. There's not a whole lot to lose. Um, and it, and it, if, like, if it keeps you engaged with your own product or project, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I, I would also caution that understanding that like some of these more successful campaigns, there's a lot more thought, time, money, energy that goes into them to making them successful and no small dose of luck either. All right. So Christine, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I know we could keep talking about nonsense marketing or experiential or whatever this is, but I think it's a lot of fun. And I want to thank you for being on the show and bringing it up because it's not, I don't think we've talked about it yet. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skalriza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at SoundCloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash routine.